Escape from Plan A. This is Chris. Welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. And this is a this is a great group here. First time combination. We have CS all the way from Olympia. Yeah, is it? Olympia. Okay. Yeah, I got it right. Hey, what's up, CS? Hi. <laughs> and uh, listeners, you might have see, uh, listened to CS. I think the last two episodes you were in on was episode 139, which was the one where you, Ray, and I talked about, uh, you know, being entering oh, our yeah. 30s. Yeah, and, yeah. Then, and then, uh, and then, and you were, you that was a, uh, well, not a live episode, but you were at my place. That was, that was fun doing that. Yeah. Obviously, unimaginable now, you know, doing doing a podcast in the same room, but... <laughs> yeah, being in New York days. seems seems like a distant dream now. Yeah, and also episode 136, which was about uh, how non-Chinese Asians uh, felt about oh, xenophobia. Right. And then, great welcome back to Christina. How are you doing, Christina? I'm doing great. It's nice to be on again. Yeah, we missed you. And uh, I mean, you ha- you have a whole bunch. Of, you had a whole bunch of adventures in the meantime that we'll hear from. But I was looking back. I think the last episode you were on was episode thirty six, which was like uh, difficulties Asian women have talking about uh, WMAF. So that that was a while ago. We've we've done almost a hundred episodes since, and I think we missed you so much. And we're so happy you're back. Yeah, I'm I'm really happy to be back. Yeah, that was like two years ago. I actually remember. <laughs> like recording that podcast really well <laughs> you're right it was like two years yeah. ago and mm-hmm. you know a lot of has happened most notably this coronavirus lockdown we're in right now so i mean before we get started i just want to check in with you guys uh how, how are you doing um cs let's start with you uh, i'm doing pretty good uh yeah i mean consi- all things consider uh even though that seattle was kind of like uh, one of the first places was it the first or no it was california no, it's yeah the first uh, reported american patient yeah, reported. was in washington i don't know if it was in seattle but it was in washington state yeah even though that i'm like very technically close to that it doesn't really seem that the county i'm in has a particularly high infection rate or death rate so in that regard it's feels a little bit safer but it is one of those things where it is always possible to get worse so you know at work um i work at a grocery store and you know, we're really having to like take every necessary precaution and uh, it's taking a hit in the business because we have to like limit hours in terms of like staffing and like who can actually show up and when we're able to stock because it's a pretty smaller store, you know, so there can't like if you're going to respect the uh, six feet rule, then, you know, stocking the sh- shelves while customers are around is really difficult. And also just like people don't really want to wait in a line outside the store to get in to respect because we have like a 20, 20 customer limit currently in effect. And I mean, it's like, I'm like happy to be working at a place that cares about these things, but it's also in terms of business, just like is bad business, which I mean, is like kind of yeah. like the overarching theme of all this, right? Yeah. Well, what are your like primary tasks that you usually do? So uh, for me, I usually work in the deli, which supports like this salad bar that people normally shop up. And that is completely closed down now. Um, but now I'm basically just like picking up hours in all the other departments of the store 
Yeah. Do you have any protective equipment? Do you, do you wear gloves, masks while you work? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at first we were kind of slow on the uh, get-go just because it was really hard to get those things. Um, admittedly, a lot of the stuff, like the protective masks that we we're all using, there's like stuff that people have made. We can't actually buy any like 3M like legit mask or anything because it's just like we can't get them. There's no distribu- distribution for it. Yeah. Do you have any fears about about getting sick? Like, ha- have there been other workers uh, getting sick or anything? Uh, I mean, for me, you know, I'm single. I live alone in my apartment, so it's not the like the 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 stakes aren't very high personally for me. But there are a lot of people who uh, work who have like kids or like have dependents or just in general have like immunity issues. And so mm-hmm. their lives are like kind of thrown for a loop because they can't actually work during store hours when we're open. And so for them, it's like a whole other issue. Um, some people are on sick leave currently. Um, and it's great that we can like uh, accommodate that. But yeah, I mean, across the board, I think people are having a really hard time kind of like balancing that. Because like, there's like a, this element of guilt that goes into it because then people like me who are like in the store and like able to like be there are put at higher risk. And I don't think anyone like feels good about like making other people like take that fall. Yeah. Damn, man. You know, like that's gotta be, that's gotta be hard, you know, working at a place like a grocery store uh, during a time like this. But then it's like, like, could you imagine like grocery stores shutting down? That would probably be like the sign of just total chaos about to descend when, you know, people can't even get food. Yeah. Yeah. When this all started uh, the very first week that things shit really start to hit the fan uh the the like we have a main delivery uh distribution the tnfi that like the majority of the groceries we get come off of this truck and for a whole week like we get uh deliveries every other day and for a whole week it just didn't show up and like the shelves started to deplete because people were like panic buying too and so it's like this disaster it like it did feel like this kind of apocalypse scenario where it's like we're at the grocery store and there's actually no food on the shelves. Uh, uh-huh, yeah. And so for a brief moment, it felt like kind of end of the world, but eventually things kind of caught up and our supplies are like pretty, I mean, everything's like kind of regulated. We're in this position now where even though like the business isn't doing great, it's surviving. I feel pretty privileged compared to like anyone who's working on the East coast where it seems like that is a lot more deadly of a, uh, situation to be in the same time it's like bizarre how people interact with you a lot of customers are like very grateful and supportive and that's nice and helpful but there's some people who like there have been instances where both me or like other coworkers have been called like fascist or nazis for like telling people to wait in lines or they can't do this can't Jeez. do that yeah, I mean, it's, it's like for their own good. It's uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, people are they just like don't have the patience for this kind of thing. Um, uh, I mean, but like that's not even the stupidest thing that's going on these days. But I mean, we'll get to that later. Uh, yeah. So thanks for sharing, CS. Uh, just a just a random question, but have there been any um, shortages or surpluses that you're surprised by? I mean, the toilet paper thing really didn't make any sense to me. But I get that it was more of like a <laughs> social thing. I was surprised that, so like one of the areas that I work probably get the most of my hours picked up in is produce. I thought people would be like buying a lot more like shelf stable things, like, you know, 
rice and onions and potatoes, or you know, like, like dry goods, dry goods, and that that's been definitely been true. Like that stuff's been out, but like holy shit, people have been like buying like like bulk like zucchini and like carrots and stuff that like or just like like kale and stuff that like like that's gonna be perishable i like i really do wonder like some people have like bought boxes of these things and i wonder how much of that stuff has just like gone bad at this point i I guess it's good that people are still trying to eat healthy and fresh but yeah i agree i you know that that's like vegetables go bad in like annoyingly go bad quickly in uh, during regular time so i I can't imagine uh you know bulk buying now or maybe they have large families so maybe they'll eat it soon i mean hopefully it's not going to waste yeah totally yeah. I just asked because like my dad, um, he's the one who like does the grocery shopping in our family at this point right now. And then he was really surprised because apparently like the ducks went untouched. Like the meat? Yeah. So like all the meat was out except for the ducks. Like nobody wants to eat ducks. That's bizarre. I thought it was pretty funny. So. That's pretty funny. Also, what kind of uh, was it? Was it an Asian grocery store? Because like the, you know, you go to Trader Joe's. I don't think they sell duck at Trader Joe's, do they? In my head, it was ShopRite, but I might be wrong. But also, our town is just really full of Chinese people. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, all of the grocery stores have kind of just accommodated our needs. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, well, that's good. Yeah. Um, so, Christina, you're, you're at home right now, right? New Jersey. How, how's that going? Um, it's going well. So, I mean, I'm uh, with my parents and my sister, uh, and we live in a pretty Chinese town, like more Chinese than um, average. I think probably my, like in my head, my high school was half Chinese and half Jewish, but I looked at the statistics recently. It's more like 20% Asian American, I guess. Oh, okay. So, um, but in my head, it was different. But anyways, so um, there's a lot of like immigrant networks in my town. So then on like a usual basis, we have a lot of random supply chains going around. So there's one family that just like buys a lot of Amish chickens and chicken eggs, and then they distribute it to our town. So like we'll go to like this random parking lot and they'll just like distribute the Amish chickens and stuff like that. (laughs) Um, And then we have like a lot of those going on actually, and they're all facilitated by WeChat. So that's actually been somewhat helpful during the crisis. And also like my dad, he's uh, an agricultural economist in New Jersey Institute of Technology. So he recently had a project like last year that was about interviewing Chinese American farmers who live in New Jersey. <laughs> That's actually been really surprisingly helpful in that he's been able to kind of like make connections with the farmers and they've kind of been able to just like deliver stuff. Oh, that, that, that's our, sweet. Yeah, deliver stuff to our town, <laughs> deliver stuff to our house. It's <laughs> actually pretty funny. But yeah, this this weird supply chain through WeChat has been going on probably for, at least my parents have been a part of it for a couple of years. So Mm -hmm. um, I never thought it would be this useful, but it is. Um, Yeah, that was actually pretty funny. 
And then also my mom, she's a she's a nursing professor. So um, she has a lot of connections with the healthcare um, industry, healthcare fields, I guess is the way to call it. So then um, she's actually been updating us a lot about like what her coworkers and what her students are up to and what the situation is like. So it's actually been a, a really interesting period of time to be hanging out with my parents and my sister for so long that's really cool i was gonna say don't let the republicans know about that farmer thing or else they'll accuse the the chinese of stealing everyone's food but it's also the democrats you know so uh you know let's let's not just let's plenty of blame to go around in terms of politicians and actually pretty interesting because like i mean um new jersey is a really immigrant area so then one of the findings of like my dad's research project was like the food producing arena in New Jersey is also really ethnicized. Oh, really? <laughs> like, like how so? Yeah. So everything circulates in terms of like Chinese farmers, Chinese customers, or like Jewish farmers, Jewish customers. Oh, <laughs> or, I see. So I thought that was pretty interesting, but yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, well, as for me, I've, um, I think I have the coronavirus. This is my like second time I, I thought I had it, but I think it's for real this time. And it's because for like a little over a week, I haven't been able to smell or taste much. Oh my God. Um, but it's coming back the last couple of days. It's been coming back more. I think I'm about maybe like somewhere between 30 to 50% uh, full capacity. And I mean, have you guys ever not been able to taste or smell things before? Like a really bad cold, maybe like that last no. for more than a day i like that no sorry chris <laughs> <laughs> and it actually it wasn't that bad i try to look at the bright side of things the bright side was i didn't i didn't care what i ate so i didn't have to w- worry about using up uh you know valuable ingredients because mm-hmm. you know all i like i could just eat like that matrix gloop every day and or every meal and it really wouldn't make a difference to me <laughs> but i think the lowest point was when i i was just like okay i gotta eat something but since it makes no difference to me and I don't want like good food wasted on me, I just uh, b- cooked a bunch of red kidney beans and then put salt on it and just like ate a bowl of that. And that was, I thought, the saddest meal I'd ever eaten. Oh, rough. Wow. I hope you don't have it. I think I have it. But the thing is, before I thought that if you had it, you would become immune. So I was happy the first time I thought I had it, which I think was just like a very mild cold. Mm. But this time, uh, there are reports where it says, oh, uh, yeah, those antibodies. Yeah, might not even show up and even if they do they don't seem there's no guarantee to help you so it's like okay well the fun's gone have you had like trouble breathing and stuff oh no i'm very healthy otherwise anyway all right so let's delve into the the topic i want to talk about and and i christina one of the reasons uh, we wanted you here uh i mean mainly we just wanted to you know talk to you again because we missed you but so this uh, podcast topic i had this idea of just talking about how this coronavirus has really made us rethink of it's basically like what our goals in life are, what our dreams, what our values. And I mean, CS, you and I are, I think, are almost exactly or if not just like almost uh, the same age. Mm-hmm. But I also wanted to hear from someone who, ha- you know, just graduated from college, especially since like for me and, and CS, when we graduated college, it was like right after or even during the, the Great Recession, the, you know, big like market crash in 08. Right. And I'm sure you and CS and uh, CS, you and I, we probably thought that was the worst, right? That was going to be, oh, no, you know, oh, woe was us, right? Like nothing could be worse than this. Youthful optimism. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and now I, I hear, I mean, from the relatively, 
you know, kind of like first world problem of, oh, no, we don't get prom, we don't get, you know, graduation, you know, I mean, it doesn't really matter in the big scheme of things, but still, that's kind of sad to the much more serious in which, you know, you, you have not only careers that are stalled, or but your whole, your the whole career that you want, it might not even be there for you anymore. So that's the thing we want to talk to you about. So, Christina, you just had a very harrowing escape from the UK. Uh, please tell us about what happened there. Oh yeah, like, it was from so the beginning. Sad. Like like when you're like you graduate from from Harvard and and you know like take us through it. Oh okay yeah um actually it's not it I, I was being like sarcastic when I said it was really dramatic but it, it kind of <laughs> I mean <laughs> it was like as dramatic I guess as my life has been over the past year but anyways okay I uh, graduated from Harvard last year uh, almost exactly a year ago. Then um, spent a summer in DC. Then went to China for uh, a couple of weeks, and then after that, embarked on my journey to the UK. Um, yeah, sorry, <laughs> trying to keep in in line with the drama. Sorry, <laughs> uh, but anyways, so uh, I was doing a year in the UK. Um, I was doing like a one year master's degree in the UK because I got some funding to do that before I go on to do other things. Um, and it was in, ironically, global governance and diplomacy, which <laughs> everybody has been like joking that it's going to be a history degree. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Dark joke. This is at Oxford, right? Yeah. Which is not, uh, not false. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> so we had been coronavirus had been in discussion i would say since february um but only among a couple of people and it wasn't really taken that seriously but i would say that by the time i left the uk it was still not really being taken that seriously um even though like for example my sister she's a year younger than me um her school had already let out for the entire year uh so the U.S. was already taking a pretty serious response to it, not on the governmental level, but on kind of the civil society level. But the U.K. was definitely not. So this was like the period of time where uh, Boris Johnson was having kind of like this herd immunity approach. Oh, yeah. That was a... Uh, he's going to want to expunge every record of him ever saying that. And, oh, my gosh. And- yeah. And then like the irony of him getting... COVID-19 eventually was just so like it's like as if you wrote a novel <laughs> yeah and no, there, there was a time when where he actually came out and said yeah there was like a 50% chance I could have died like could you imagine if he died I don't want to know what the hysteria and the like sinophobia would be in the in the UK like yeah. basically it would be like you assassinated our our prime minister the guy we hate anyway but then he would have become a martyr I bet well, anyway uh, yeah go on. no it would have been really bad but basically yeah so but yeah so the reason why I decided to go back because I was originally planning on trying to stay in the UK for maybe another couple of months the reason why I decided to come back was not because my university told me that it was a good idea to come back because everybody was kind of taking their cues from the federal government so Boris Johnson didn't seem concerned so nobody else seemed concerned and everything but um in Oxford there was kind of like this dramatic jump from two cases of COVID to like six cases in a day. 
And I was just like, okay, this is just going to go up from there. So then I called my parents and I was like, okay, time for me to go home (laughs) because this whole campus is going to be like full of cases. Because at that point, there was still like a lot of events of hundreds of people that were going on like every day. And Wait, this is this is March or February? This was March. Okay. Like mid-March. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are the other students doing? So um, I actually ended up leaving um, the day that the um, travel ban on the EU by the US expanded to the UK and Ireland. So I was probably one of the last planes to get out. Damn. So then um, people were... People were panicking probably like the day before I left because um, the travel ban was like announced and um, even though it doesn't apply to U.S. citizens it impacts like the airport decisions of whether they're going to have the airplane fly or not so people were really um, concerned about that and then also some of the flights were just like insanely expensive like it was maybe at least a th- maybe $2,000 or something for a plane ride to the U.S. So I got huh. on one of the only like reasonably priced plane rides, which was really early in the morning. Um, and I was like really lucky to find that plane ride. Yeah. Uh, so, Christina, if you could let, uh, you know, p- people know, just like what's what's like the, do you think is the predominant mindset among your age group, which I would say would be like, the absolute youngest millennials to, you know, the oldest Gen Z kids who, you know, are just, you know, in the kind of like their second half of college, have recently graduated. And I mean, you would have been young enough to see the, the, the you know, the 2008 crash. Uh, and now this. So, like, do you, yeah. do you get a sense of what people's, are they, are you guys numb to it? Like, oh, here we go again kind of thing? Like, yeah, what, actually, what's going I was on? thinking about this recently, um, like kind of contextualizing my life in the history of the United States. Um, <laughs> no small feat, you know, just like, yeah. <laughs> figure out so, my place in history. Actually, I did a little bit of this, like, last year, where I was just like, wow, like, how is it possible that I started my college experience in 2015 with, like, the Trump. Obama administration, we're going to have our first women president, like, this is really an exciting time to be alive, to, like, the election of Trump and everything that happened afterwards. I was just, like, drastically contrasting kind of my state of mind and how I understood the country from the beginning of my college year to the, like, end of my college years. So then, um, yeah, it was... So that's one thing I was thinking about last year. And this year, I decided to kind of expand the time series to include my entire life. So (laughs) I'm just going to uh, do like a brief kind of summary of the context of my life, which I mean, you were you were alive for. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, CS and I were alive. Yeah, (laughs) this is not really, I guess, that exciting for you. But (laughs) Okay. Go for it. I was born in 97. Okay. The 90s is like the post-Cold War period. The United States is like really excited about being the leader and like positive that democracy is going to just travel around the world like somewhat like a virus or something. And every- Wait, can I, can I uh, interject for a second? I don't like it when, when like Americans say like, oh, we're sparing democracy because it's not really democracy. It's more like this 
capitalistic democracy, but I feel like they, they don't like to use terms like capitalism mm-hmm. because democracy just sounds better. I remember like social studies class where be, where our teacher uh, would say things like, it was our democracy versus their communism, which is like, but that doesn't, like communism is more of an economic system. Democracy is more of like a political system. So I, I uh, but uh, yeah, I get what you're saying, Christina. Yeah, so I just feel like it was a very hopeful period for the United States. And I do remember actually kind of growing up in that kind of optimism. Like um, my high school years, obviously, was uh, the Obama administration. So then um, I remember actually that probably had a lot of impact on my thinking, especially probably exposing me to things like identity politics and conversations on race from a very early age, because there was kind of the sense that that really matters. Like there was Mm -hmm. kind of a sense that like things like your identity is something that matters. It's not something to shut away from and everything like that. And then I remember actually there was a very clear break in my thinking regarding identity politics after the election of Donald Trump, where I just felt that it wasn't, um, it was, uh, how do I describe this? I wasn't sure if it was as helpful that as I thought it was beforehand. But anyways, I just was Wait, thinking it, about it. You mean that Obama's victory as like an advancement for just like identity representation didn't make the impact that you thought it had? Because that's what I felt. Uh, so I'm just uh, trying to figure out what, what you mean. Yeah, I mean, I think it was, there was a period of time where you just take for granted because you're growing up in the era that this is something that it's, that's important and there's no reason it would not be important. You know what I mean? Whereas like afterwards, you start thinking, wait, is this something that is not socially acceptable everywhere in the United States? <laughs> oh, you mean like the, the kind of like talking about things like identity uh you took it for you took it for granted that the whole country cared yeah. but okay okay yeah, i understand I what you're saying for, it took for granted that like the whole country identi- the whole country is thinking about identity and identity is this really important part of the, the american narrative like it never occurred to me i think to not think like that or not say something like that publicly if that makes sense mm-hmm. um and then Afterwards, uh, I think, yeah, most people I talk to who are my age kind of view, I guess, our entire lives as this like narrative of American decline. <laughs> no, that's. I think that's okay. But actually, Christina, I you said like you, you grew up in a time of optimism, but you were born in ninety seven. When you're four years old, nine eleven happens. When you're like five or or six. When you're like before you even start kindergarten, the Iraq War starts, um, and and to me, I, I look back at like the 2000s, which is regrettably the the decade I came of age, and and you too, CS. It was a really bad decade. It was like you have most of it spanned the George W. Bush presidency. You have 9/11. You have the Great Financial Crisis. Culturally, mm-hmm. it's kind of a wasteland, um, mm-hmm. except for you know a few pockets here and there, uh, but. To me, what I think of as the '90s is still like a kind of a an echo that reverberated into the 2000s, like wishful thinking. I think mm-hmm. where you know, as soon as like the Iraq War starts, and or let's let's say like as soon as like George W. Bush becomes president, that's like I think a real marker of when American decline can really be. It's like a good, 
it's obviously too simplistic, I think, but I think it's a good say, okay, this is kind of where it starts. Mm-hmm. But I think for into the 2000s, there was still a false hope. Um, so maybe that's what you're talking about. But like, how did 9-11 affect you, for instance? I really don't remember anything before 9-11. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> which is uh pretty sad, but no, like because like some for someone your age, mm-hmm. it's like nine eleven when you're basically when you're almost like just born. Mm-hmm. Then when you're like ten ish, when when you're starting to you know just about to enter your teens, is is the great global financial crisis. And now when you're like in your twenties on the cusp of like adulthood, is, is the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. That's a really rough, really rough timeline. At least see us. You and I, we had maybe like ten years. You know, we got to we got to live the '90s at least. Even if if uh, I don't remember a lot of it, a lot of what I think of the '90s, as I said, more like the late '90s and early 2000s. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, that's rough. '90s were definitely yeah. Kind of yeah I, was, I was just about to say. I just feel like um, most people just think, of course, this would happen. Like, what what else would happen? <laughs> if that makes sense. Like, people what, are just. Wait, what do you mean? Like, what else would happen? What do you or mean? just like, okay, everything's getting worse and worse and worse. So here, this is like perfectly in line with everything that has happened. If that <laughs> Which is like, I think in general, actually, my generation is probably a little nihilistic, I feel. Um, and who could blame you, right? Yeah. I mean, in terms of if you look at the, I guess, the memes, like the sense of humor and stuff like that, <laughs> I don't think it's really out there to say that it's kind of a nihilistic depressed generation where it's kind of normal to be nihilistic and depressed (laughs) and that makes sense i think cs you and me like our generational cohort like the older millennials i think i think we were like the last generation to be optimistic because i mean our stereo the stereotype of of millennials by which uh you know what they mean are people kind of like in their 30s now it was that we were like bright-eyed go-getters. We wanted to do what we love. We wanted to change the world. That was our stereotype for for better or for worse. And um, there, there's, you guys ever seen the movie Julia and Julia? Mm-mm. Yeah. Okay. I, I recently saw it. I mean, a totally inconsequential movie from like the late 2000s. Um, in case people don't know, it's about this uh, internet blogger um, who decides to cook every a recipe in the in the Julia Child cookbook, and oh. and it stars Meryl Streep, and it, it goes back and forth. It is kind of a, half of it's a biopic of Julia Child, half of it is about this uh, modern woman in in New York City, yeah, creating this popular blog that that actually existed. This is a true story, and then she went on to write this uh, book about her endeavors. But the the movie is set in two thousand and two, and I was as I was watching this, it just struck me that this was the the birth of that I think very millennial dream of because she works at uh, the main character played by amy adams works mm-hmm. this crappy telemarketing job and in her spare time because she loves cooking and uh you know the, the internet's right there she starts a blog and eventually she she you know becomes i guess relatively rich and famous uh because of the success of it but that was like the millennial dream right you you work a job you hate but you have this other passion usually like something creative like you know cooking or, or writing or art or fashion or whatever. And then the internet is there to provide you with this free uh, platform uh, to let the world appreciate you. And eventually you're gonna you're going to be lifted out of this gray mundane life into doing what you were meant to do, which was, I don't know, cook or whatever. And that dream is so dead now. Uh, you see this now even before the coronavirus, you saw you see like all these online publications that were supposed to 
create this new industry where you know everyone would have a voice and all that. Every month, a new place would get shut down. I think recently Kotaku got shut down. Oh, you know, last like so many months before, that's been famously uh, got sh- shut down. Like the people just quit because they were so tired of the private equity fund that was running them. It's and and I was just watching that movie, and it was such a perfect time capsule of of that optimism that is now dead. Yeah, that's um, I completely understand everything that you're saying, just because I feel like when I was in sixth grade, probably the definition of success was to create an amazing YouTube channel. (laughs) (laughs) Become a YouTube millionaire. That was the dream, right? Yeah. It still is for a lot of of young people, I feel like, uh, YouTube. No, no, no. Now now it's it's TikTok. Now it's become a TikTok. TikTok and like streaming, uh, Twitch TV. But, you know, the the thing of becoming... Well, now, now, not less so, but becoming an influencer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I would say there was nothing that kind of influenced my thinking more in, like, growing up than probably, like, just kidding news or, like, <laughs> a YouTube channel. They're, they're still around, you know? They're, they're still around doing their thing. Yeah. I haven't checked up on them, but maybe I should. <laughs> yeah. I, I was just going to say, like, it's so sad that, like, TikTok now makes YouTube look like uh, like auteurs like if you're if you're a youtube person and you make a 10 minute video compared to like a 10 second tiktok you're you're, you're a fucking an auteur you know you're you you, you know theory you know film theory compared to <laughs> compared to that so <sighs> when i graduated college i mean i was i i didn't know what i was doing after after college i basically like moved back home and didn't really have much plans except maybe go to law school so you know i took the lsat so i didn't really have to deal with the the job market so you know, most of what I know is just based on some of my friends who did interviews and stuff. I mean, like, uh, but like CS, like you, like you didn't graduate from college right. and stuff. So do you remember what your mindset was then? Just like with, with the market crash and everything? Oh, it was shit. It was utter shit. Um, <laughs> well, be- between 2008 and 2011, uh, the 2008 one, I think was pretty difficult. Uh, at the time I was still pretty young, just out of living with my mom and living on the West coast for the first time after growing up in Minnesota. Um, and I remember that summer, uh, I think it was 2000, it might've been 2009. Uh, I had, I was experiencing like a lot of housing instability and didn't just like, didn't really have a plan for what I was going to do between years. Um, and really struggling to find a job and it just wasn't happening at all. There was, there was like, and I was just looking for like anything like dishwasher, just, Simple connections that any other time it would have been very easy to get these jobs. But uh, during that time, it's like if you didn't have like you didn't know the right person or if you didn't already have like vast experience in like this, like uh, what would be like a low skill field, then you're just kind of like no one's going to hire you. And so that summer was pretty difficult. Uh, Luckily, I was like. Wait, what what year summer was this? It was either 2008 or 2009. I can't remember. Okay. Because um, the effects, I, I remember like the crisis happening like through 2009 too for the 2008 financial crisis. Like the job market was still terrible. Lehman Brothers like went under, I think it was like August 2008 or something. That's when like John McCain infamously suspended his uh, presidential campaign to, you know, go like save the economy. And then, uh, you know, like one week later, he came back because I guess mission accomplished or something. But that was really, I I think, what let Obama pull away. Because I think before that, they were still relatively close. 
But then the, the market crash happened. Everybody blamed uh, the Republicans, and then Obama was able to write that. Uh, but you know, like it, it like, arguably we we never really pulled out of that. I mean, despite what the stock market, how the stock market has mm-hmm. done. Right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it like officially began in 2008. But you know, it went on. It kept on going. I mean, I graduated in 2010. You know, so it, it was still going on then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember my my mom, my mom was part of that whole uh, housing bubble crisis where she couldn't afford the mortgage payments and sold, um, ended up declaring bankruptcy during that time. So oh, that, was, that was the other, other problem is just like at that point for me, going back home wasn't an option. You know, she was living in like a pretty small dinky apartment. And I, at the time I was just like so broke, I couldn't even really afford a plane ticket back. So it's like kind of oh, just damn. making, making what, 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 what I could work with what I had at that moment. 2011 was, uh, I would have been a class of 2011. So when that, I basically was like on the job market starting that year. And that, that had better results because I had more saved up at that point. You know, my experience in 2008 probably kind of like fed into like a little bit like, all right, you got to be a little bit more prepared than you were last time. But Mm -hmm. uh, like I was living in, uh, basically like my friend's living room at the time we had like constructed a like small room for myself out of like <laughs> this like fit like fake door that we used like or this fake wall <laughs> that we made out of like plywood and shit and it was like a very nice looking wall but like you could hear everything that was going on <laughs> in the living room so it was uh, like a flex apartment yeah basically uh i was paying like a hundred dollars a month which is like amazing like the fact that i could find something like that um but I was unemployed for uh, just under a year. Um, and so that was a really hard time of just like, you know, I only had to like make a hundred bucks a month, but it was still like hustling and selling stuff and like trying to find odd uh-huh. jobs. And so I think compared to, to this crisis now, you know, I think the thing that's interesting for me is that um, it kind of continues the cycle where like right before last, last year, I had just switched jobs from working in, in a restaurant in, in the kitchen to getting this job I have now at the grocery store. Um, and the only thing that really compelled me to do it was that the grocery store job had benefits, which I'm really grateful for. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it, there's like this feeling of like kind of, you know, the cliff receding. I had just like made the step to not fall off it because yeah. all my coworkers at that old job are unemployed now. Um, and a lot of restaurants are like wondering if they're going to like make it just on like doing deliveries and stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is like a, a kind of thing of like a skill set that a lot of people are learning of like trying to like barricade and build trenches and like have some semblance of security. Um, and that like this kind of like disaster scenarios, I think going to be kind of something on everyone's mind who are growing up through these things. Um, it's weird too because I think about like my grandparents who lived through the Great Depression and World War II, and how you know we my mom would like was always kind of disgusted going back to that that house because it's just filled with stuff all the time, you know, uh, a lot of hoarding. But and like in these days, it's like I don't I don't really live the way that they did, but I you kind of like start to understand why you would do those things. It starts to make more sense that I think is kind of lost in my mom's generation. Yeah. I mean, that that's, uh, I want to pose this question for you guys. Like undoubtedly, this is going to 
have such a huge impact on just a, like a generational mindset on you know what what you strive for in your life, what you value. So, do you think people will become more like, cautious? Because like this, you know, like not only you know two thousand eight, but but this, it's like yeah, you can do everything right. You know, you could uh, like for example with, with like a lot of uh, law firms, you know, a lot of law students, they had to like summer positions all lined up. Some firms. Are not just like canceling their programs and and being like, oh yeah, well, well sorry, you know, like, uh, too bad, uh, and you know, all these students did everything right and everything. Yeah. Uh, do you think that will cause people to, you know, for example, become hoarders, whether whether you know it's it's material stuff or money, or it could be the exact opposite too. It could be just like, well, you know, who knows? Like, who knows? In five years, there might be a new uh, pandemic that'll make coronavirus look like you know SARS, uh, in that at least you know, uh, the coronavirus has a relatively low fatality rate. Could you imagine something like MERS? It's just as, uh, you know, as contagious as the coronavirus, but with like a 30% fatality rate. I mean, people could be just like, you know, YOLO, you know, let's just let's just spend everything we have. Go travel the world. You never know when, when the airlines will just like all go out of business or whatever. So what are your guys' thoughts? But what do you think? How do you think people will start thinking after this? Um, yeah, this is an interesting question because... I, I was thinking about it more, I guess, like politically in terms of just like, I think for people my age, the idea of a functioning government is a myth or like, not not a myth, but kind of just like this mythos of the previous generation or something like that. But maybe that's, that's not even true. Like maybe it's never worked. But I mean, I was originally saying that I, people are a little bit angrier and more sympathetic to people but I mean I don't really think that's going to happen as much as just like I guess for uh my generation it's just like people right now have so little faith in like everything but one thing I think that is a little bit better about coronavirus than maybe like the 2008 financial crisis was I think it was easier to internalize the 2008 financial crisis in terms of like, it was easier to be like, oh, I'm, I I might be wrong because I didn't like live through it or go through like the job search during this period of time. But I think it was probably easier to be like, I didn't go to the right job or I didn't get the right job or I didn't work hard enough to find the, work hard enough during the job search I think it was easier to internalize it and not to be like okay no it's an outside forces fault that and it's everybody else's fault that this happened to me if that makes sense because no no I I think you're definitely right and even if you didn't internalize it it was really hard to find out who it was to blame because I don't think the anger against Wall Street really coalesced until like the Occupy Wall Street movement. And even then people kind of looked down upon that as a bunch of these like young loser slackers who were just angry because they were young loser slackers. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think in the, in the Trump election uh, it really, I I think it took almost like 10 years for people to realize who they should really be mad at. And then, you know, Trump totally took advantage of that and and got elected. Mm -hmm. And I, because it was so difficult to understand. Like, right. I've taken, I majored in applied math and economics in college. So I've taken like three or four classes on the 2008 financial crisis. And it's like right now, 
I kind of have an idea of what was going on, like 5% of what was going on. It was just so cryptic and it was so vague and it was so difficult to understand. Whereas this, I think it's very easy to understand. Like (laughs) this is like, it's obviously not anyone's fault that they can't find a job right now because nobody can go to interviews. And at the same time, no, no businesses are staying afloat. Like it's just a very easy external force to understand why your life is not going the way that you want it to go if that makes Mm -hmm. sense yes but also i think the danger is then um like uh, blame really should go to the government Mm -hmm. but uh obviously now the government's going to deflect and that's why they're all blaming china so much Mm -hmm. and or or you know they'll they'll get even crazier they'll they'll start blaming i don't know i'm sure they'll find a way to blame the gays or or something like that and i I think Mm -hmm. it, it I think that what we really have to do is make sure that the right right entities and the right people get blamed. And, and the thing that should be blamed is essentially the American system. You know, yeah. the American system is the one that has uh, let you all down. Um, that it's it's this like rotten healthcare system. It's this complete lack of, of like uh, like a social safety net and all that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we see we see that that thing that came out that it was like 60 page memo where the Republicans were just like, yeah, let's, like we can't even defend Trump on this. So let's just blame China, China, China. And that's really going to tap into people's already existing fears of this like American decline. And we're going to be replaced by the, by the yellow people kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's, that's a big danger and we're going to have to fight back against that. Uh, so yes, I, I want to hear about what you think. Like, what, what do you think people are going to be like? Are they going to become more, is that carefree because you I mean who who knows what'll happen next, or do you think they'll become more careful because it's like, well, who knows what's coming next? I I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to say in a general sense. I don't really know if I have like a good uh, you know, my finger on the pulse of what is the average. For me, what, what do you think? Like, I mean, like personally, yeah, for you. yeah. Uh, like for me, I I think I am like definitely hunkering down and like trying to be way more careful. Um, I feel like people who are kind of uh still below the class rung that I've like gone from this job to the last job, you know, if you're dealing with like addiction or like instability of any, any kind, I would, I, I would, I have already seen like people go like the YOLO mindset where it's just like, fuck it. I'm going to like start using more. I don't really give a shit. Um, and to that regard, it's like pretty destructive. Uh, I don't know. I think so, so much of this is really tied to like class and like what you're like aspirationally, what you're going through. Um, someone like me is like not really like has your eyes on like class ascension so much, so much as just like surviving day to day. And so this is just kind of like a hit and you're kind of like enduring as you make your way through it and hopefully you can kind of dig your way out of it. But if your dream was to like, you know, get that creative position uh, as an animator or an influencer, like whatever, you know, um, I, I, it would make a lot of sense to me if you just said, fuck it. And you just went pure hedonism. Um, <laughs> I, I, and I, I don't think that is a great attitude to have, but it does seem like that would be a common thing. I think one thing that keeps me hopeful is that, and I'm not sure how, uh, across the board this is, but like, you know, in social media, I see a lot more like younger people, people, you know, Gen Zers and around that area who are a lot more like politically minded or uh, like, you know, care a lot about more about theory are engaged, uh, like going hard left on their politics. And I think that is um, 
gives me some semblance of hope just because it, it indicates that there is some like sense of agency. Like, like I think things in, in the face of things being so bleak, it's easy to just kind of let go entirely. But I think if you're able to have like some semblance of position, even if it is in opposition of what is like, uh, you know, the common discourse, um that that's something worthwhile mm-hmm. yeah i mean i'm you know i'm like in a white collar profession and even though i never aspired for you know the the more you know a lot of people who who work in you know like my field and everything they want the nice you know summer home and they want to be able to vacation you know three times a year to very you know, fancy places and all that never wanted that Anyway, but this has certainly accelerated that desire to be like, yeah, it just, it, it ultimately it'll just weigh you down. Because I'm just thinking of people who have maybe like big mortgages on big houses and have already have kids and they're worried about getting them into some like $50,000 a year, you know, kindergarten, uh, you know, all the way up to the 12th grade. And that's even before college starts. And just like what kind of situation they are in now. Like I never wanted that in the first place, but with all this happening, it's like, ooh, you know, thank God I, I didn't didn't aspire for that anyway and have to have to have the heartbreak of giving it up because my God, you know, it just and I and I wonder how many more people are thinking that, especially like Asian Americans, because I think a lot of us think we want that just because we think that's really the only path for us, especially if we want any kind of status in society. But it's really it's such a weight. And you just don't know what's coming up next. And as I said, like there, it's only probably going to get worse. You know, a, a climate change is going is to melt the the ice, and then who knows what'll come out from the from the ice? You know, all sorts of ancient illnesses, plague. Yeah, and so it, it, this is like a preview of what the next century is probably going to be like. American decline, um, wow. this this wrath of nature kind of thing, mm-hmm. and. In that new reality, how do you have to adjust your dreams? Because I think the old, whether it's I want to become like a, a CEO and and you know have my own uh, G five or whatever, or you know it's like I, w- I want to become a, a, a internet sensation and you know become an Instagram star. Uh, there's an article out on on Vanity Fair where, which was like, okay, like this is probably the end of the influencer economy. There was this some influencer name was uh, Ariel Charnas or whatever. She because uh, for these people, they got to keep doing stuff, right? But right now, if, if you post something about you lounging around your nice house, everyone's just going to hate you for it. And I think she she had like some doctor friend or whatever who gave her a, a coronavirus test and people got mad at her for it. So it's like, not only are they, are they losing all their sponsors, but the whole concept of essentially flaunting your, your lifestyle is just really out right now. Like people aren't having any of that. The same thing happened with Joe Rogan too, where he got in a controversy for... Uh, testing all of the guests that was coming on his podcast and people gave him a bunch of shit. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So like Joe Rogan's now too elitist for the people now. I guess so, that's, yeah. That's, uh, that's how much things have changed. Yeah, actually, this is um, just me personally. This was kind of interesting because uh, unlike both of you, I've been listening to podcasts more often and I think it's because I have to like do a lot of chores now where it's like... <laughs> Um, oh no, your I parents forcing you. <laughs> so that's probably why. So then I started listening to like three different daily podcasts 
One is obviously oh, yeah. The Daily by The New York Times, mm-hmm. <laughs> the journal, creatively by The Wall Street Journal. And I think the third one's called The Post or something by The Washington Post. Uh-huh. Really interesting because I actually stopped listening to the um, the Daily because of that, like because every single one of their episodes ended up being about like what do what does this reporter who like sends her children to private elementary school like what does she deal with now that she has to stay home all the time with her kids like stuff like that which I just felt was like kind of self-indulgent yeah so I I also kind of understand exactly where you're coming from but I would say of the three I probably like post reports best because it's a little bit more like it focuses a little bit more on people who I think are really struggling in the in the in the crisis like yeah they covered um, prisoners probably two or three weeks before the New York Times covered it. So I was, yeah, I just, that's just one of my recommendations out there. But like, I completely understand what you were saying in terms of just like, there might be a generation gap or something, but like the whole, um, I think like the whole self-reporting about like what you're doing and how you're feeling and stuff like that is kind of going out the window. <laughs> yeah. At this point, it's total cliche to say, but it's also exposing the, all the like different tiers of society in a way that it, it just widens and exposes the the gaps uh, so much. Like, um, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I, Christina, you're not on Twitter, so you probably didn't see this, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe last week there's, there's a writer, Amira Jacob, and she wrote this. I think she's like a writer slash graphic artist or something she did this uh at this article of sorts in the in the new york times and it was all about how her and her family decided to leave new york city this was like mid-march so it was like on the border between when it was like officially locked down and not but i I think they decided to just leave to go to one of her either her parents or her husband's parents and it was all about them making a road trip and it was like I didn't quite read it. I, I just I just entertained myself with the Twitter outrage. But <laughs> it was she would just stop by in these small towns in you know in the middle of a, of the country, and she'd be like, "Do they know what's going on?" Yeah, as as if they were these total dumbass rubes who didn't even have the internet or something, didn't realize that uh, you know the coronavirus was happening. And it was so much hate for her on Twitter. And it, it was it's not an isolated case you know you saw the anger against someone like you know Gal Gadot who made that horrible imagine um video which i'm sure you've all seen yeah, yeah. right actually I, mean, I didn't see that <laughs> okay you're better off not seeing it but it's this like musically it's terrible because it's all disjointed it's like her and her celebrity friends all singing one line from oh. from a horrible song imagine mm-hmm. and and they're all in their nice backyards and nice mansions and the outrage was just uh, you know, it, it was like as, as bad as the, the Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad. You see this uh, with celebrities. Uh, you see this with uh, the, the, the class of people who, you know, write for magazines and newspapers documenting what they're doing. And it's, it is, a, it, I think, they're taking a very unflattering magnifying glass to American society. Yeah. Yeah. I, look, I'm thinking about the article you sh- shared about, um, was it Ariel Sharnas? 
oh, influencer. Yeah. I was reading, I was reading through the article and her, you know, apology after getting called out about that whole situation, and it really struck me because the apology, uh, it's just like not not particularly surprising at all, but it's like to me very self-involved. I think one of the things she says is like, I just want to tell like my story and tell you like how sorry I am for all this, which is like, uh, I, the impression I got from it is, is just a very zero concern for like her own responsibility. Like the, alpha, like what the, um, what, what, what could happen based on like her, like putting this stuff out there, like how irresponsible it is for, to know that you have an audience and that like your actions could influence people to make poor decisions. It's very like self-obsessed. Um, and to me, looking at that and like the Gal Gadot thing and the Miriam Jacobs uh, article, like it's all like this idea of influencers. It only really works. The illusion only works if people believe that they can obtain that image. And as soon as people stop believing that that is something attainable, uh, I think the, it really cracks open like class stratification that is, has been pre-existing, but like up to this point, people had like bought into because suddenly now it's like painfully evident that it is no longer possible for people who are stuck at home, you know, in New York have no other options that they can obtain this like dream of being really irresponsible and like that there's no stakes in it. Yeah. I mean, whether it's an influencer, uh, you know, showing off the latest, you know, sponsored clothes they got from somebody, or or like a CEO in in a nice uh, resort in you know in the Pacific Islands or something, or some like writer in in a nice you know Brooklyn brownstone or whatever. The, the only yeah, as you said, CS. The only way that works is if they're saying you know I have this, but so can you right. if you are you know work hard enough or you or you're brilliant enough or whatever. And then, and then people buy into that. But as soon as people realize that's not obtainable, it just becomes gloating and people are going to get really pissed off about it. And now, I, uh, something like coronavirus has shown, there's such a, a unbridgeable gap between certain tiers of society. And then when the upper tiers are showing, uh, you know, there's that brutally effective Donald Trump ad that shows like Nancy Pelosi with all the ice cream she has. Uh, and... You know, obviously, it's like well, on one hand, it's kind of unfair in the sense that okay, well, like if she, she hasn't, she has ice cream, like that's not a crime. But still, that the message it sends is, you know, she's up there, you're down here, and you will never get to where she is. And you used to think that, but that was all a lie, and they knew it was a lie, and they told you that so that you would shut the fuck up. And when people get that message, that's when people get really pissed off, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also think that there is this um, kind of intolerance for self-narrativization and then also like poetic interpretations of what's going on in the world it like (laughs) you mean you mean like while the corona like a poetic interpretation of the coronavirus yeah i don't know even um stuff like the presidency and stuff like that like for example i am a sucker for poetry and poetic interpretations of things like i really am but mm-hmm. and my favorite poet of like all time is this guy named Terrence Hayes, who um, he used to be in Carnegie Mellon and now he's at NYU. But he's like he is a really interesting poet in terms of just but that's like besides the point. But his most recent book was like a hundred sonnets for the first 
a hundred days of Donald Trump's presidency or something like that. It was okay. I forget what it's. It was called like sonnets for my past and future assassins or something like that. I was just personally surprised by how little I felt about it. If that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. And that's like, honestly, a really serious change in my personality. It's a really serious change in how I viewed the world before. Because as I said before, I was like, kind of a sucker for poetry and poeticizing things and listening to different people's imaginative interpretations of what's going on. Like now I think that there's much more of a demand for what's the solution? Like, Where's the Band-Aid? What's the cure? Like stuff like that, which I think is kind of different from how I grew up understanding what people needed in crisis, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I totally get you. I mean, like the 100 sonnets for a presidency, that's that's some like Obama uh, era shit. Like 100 sonnets for like 100 days of Obama. That's like perfect. Uh, that's perfect for, for that era, you know, because it was... Exactly. Like, what it feels like is, I, th- I think America, and like Americans and everybody who conceives of America uh, is, is realizing just how much of the necessities we lack. Because all that thing about like hundred, you know, poetic interpretation, hundred sonnets—that's all very nice. You know, I I I want that too. I don't want to just live in a world where all, all we uh, concern ourselves is like which, like how many cans of bean we can, we can hoard so we can just get through the next day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but thinking more about that requires a, a level of. Uh, just like s- settledness, a level of just uh, just mm-hmm. like dependability on 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 people, on institutions, where then you can you can you know start thinking about about the more luxurious uh, things. I mean, I don't like saying luxurious just because it then makes it sound like it's totally uh, frivolous. But I mean, th- it's kind of what what the, the microcosm of of what in uh, Asian America you saw that happening you know with like second generation and third generation kids saying yo we don't we don't want to just you know survive we we want to do more than just worry about just like the day to day life that's why we want to i don't know go into entertainment or go into fashion or 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 that kind of stuff and i think uh with america ever since you know probably like let's say let's say the 90s you know the the the, the glorious decade of of american civilization yeah. it's been this idea that um Things like, you know, like identity are are important, and I think they are important. But it also requires everything uh, that builds up to it to be stable. Mm-hmm. But then we're realizing that there's so much rot in that system where we might not be able to afford to worry about things like identity if we're trying to fight back like little Nazis in, in our in our society. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the idea that you know we're gonna write like a, a hundred sonnets about like. The, the first black president i mean like 10 years ago it really did seem like that that would make a, a big difference but that, i mean the, the way entirely my... appropriate like right, right. <laughs> that seemed also entirely american you know what i mean whereas like mm. now i yeah i was just like this feels like the response of a bygone era <laughs> i actually yeah. felt kind of similarly to like there's this girl on my facebook who like sells these like girl power t-shirts and stuff like that i was like Mm -hmm. that feels very 2000s to me like yeah yeah. and i mean just just think about it who are our two presidential nominees right now you got donald trump uh, obviously no need to say more but then you got joe biden i I think (laughs) the last day or so did you hear about the the larry king tape that came out in which uh reads 
mother called in on like in the early 90s to say that her daughter had um some like trouble with like some u.s senator and didn't know who to turn to and that like you know she was scared and all that so i mean there's just another piece of evidence to 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 corroborate uh the allegations against joe biden and this is 2020 and it's, it's like how much has have we gone downhill since like say 2008 that i, I saw a tweet uh where i'm sure this was probably like a liberal or progressive person said like i don't care if like joe biden raped like a hundred people i would still vote for him and like wow that's like that's like some shit you might want you might see like a hundred years ago or like that's what we would have thought in like say 2008 or like 2012 um yeah oh we're so past that it's like no like eight years into the future yeah this is what we're seeing mm-hmm. So I, I think for Asian Americans, I mean, especially me, you know, I, you know, I, I like I, I write, you know, like all about Asian America, you know, both fiction and nonfiction. I think about us, like what, how, how do we, what is our like realization among all this? I, I think um, for one, our, our sneaking suspicions, I'm sure, unless you're like totally duped or totally just like naive or, or quite frankly, stupid, I always knew that there was this just like this hatred uh, lurking very, very, you know, not, not that far below the surface in American society, but now it's so, so much out in the open. And as I said, it's pretty bipartisan. I mean, the Republicans are way worse, but uh, you know, Democrats are pretty bad too. I, I think for us, is, is it, especially with, you know, the last like few years where like media representation, we really seemed like it was going somewhere. And and for us, that was like the the final tier, right? That was the, the last hurdle we had to we had to jump uh, before we felt fully accepted, and we seemed pretty close to it. It just seemed like a matter of time before we finally got there. And then this happens. What do you guys think? Like, do you th- how do you, how do you think the the Asian American mindset has been affected? Well, I mean, I think it's going to be being Asian American is going to be a fundamentally different identity than it is now in terms of just well, it might be premature, but in terms of just the in- antagonism that's going to occur and then also the fact that um people are really perceiving china's rise in certain ways so i think it's going to be an an inherently different identity than it is now like in terms of you are going to know exactly i think how people view you and view your family. Whereas I think one of the questions beforehand was just like people were asking if they were closer to being white or closer to being black or closer to being um, ethnicized in the United States or fully assimilated. Like I think those were some of the fundamental questions in Asian American discourse that now it's like the, all those things are going to be answered for you. Don't worry. <laughs> so I think it's going to be fundamentally different identity and I but I'm not that unsure of how it's going to pan out for us if that makes sense like I think that there's going to be much more of a connection between being Asian American and your connection with like the motherland quote unquote Mm -hmm. so one thing that was really surprising to me so last time I was on a plan a pod I was in Grenoble, France, <laughs> and um, I remember that I was constantly having to talk to people about like Chinese politics, which is 
um, like kind of ridiculous because I know nothing about Chinese politics. Like, what would they ask you? Constantly asked about like questions about Xi Jinping and stuff like that, and having to talk about like my opinion on that. And I was just like, okay, this is such a bizarre experience because I have never been asked about Xi Jinping in the United States. Like my my appearance as being Asian American is not really connected to China as it was in France in terms of what people were saying. But I think that that's going to happen a lot more from now on. And oh yeah, definitely enough to be like we're not perpetual foreigners or we're not model minorities, like those kinds of negative statements, you know, like I think like the stakes will be much higher um, and you'll start to have to say more, I think maybe solidified things or like you'll have to have an opinion, which is what a lot of Asian Americans have uh, like tried to, to shirk. Mm-hmm. because okay like okay so here i think here's a fundamental problem for asian americans like there's this whole like calling it a chinese virus thing i think there's pretty much uh strong support among all asian americans of of all political persuasions that that is not good mm-hmm. and some people will say that it's because it's uh it harms asian americans and they'll just stop at that that this harms asian americans therefore it's bad but i think the deeper question is if the root allegation, because uh, like, who cares about you know Chinese virus or whatever it's called, like that's not the real concern. The real concern is that it it reflects this idea that China is at fault, not only for the coronavirus but also for American loss of jobs, for for fentanyl, for for I don't know uh, internet piracy, all that. China's all at fault, and th- that it's the manifestation of that of that feeling. Mm-hmm. Now, if Asian Americans uh, eventually will have to come up with some kind of reveal their stance on that is that true and if it is true then why should if 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 it's true then china is such a great threat that i would i think the logical conclusion is that the the feelings or maybe even well-being of a few asian americans who aren't that much even we're like oh yeah we're like 18 or 20 million now uh really not that big uh in the big scheme of things right Asian Americans would then be acceptable collateral damage in the big picture. And I don't think Asian Americans are really prepared to think deeper than that. That's why I think so many of them are, are focused on the, the whole like Chinese virus thing, especially like people in the media, because they're really scared to say anything that will, you know, make them sound like communist sympathizers or whatever. Uh, so I think that is going to be a very important question to ask. Like, is China really to blame for it? And Asian Americans will have to say yes or no to that. And if they say, if they kind of hint at yes, then there's a certain, in, in, in kind of the whole utilitarian um, outlook on things, there's a certain level of Asian American suffering that will have to be acceptable. And I, and that's just how it's going to end up. Yeah, um, I, th- I think this is something that was kind of interesting. But yeah, the, you, have you guys heard of the um, one of the daily podcasts that was like interviewing basically a Chinese immigrant on how she felt about being Chinese American during the coronavirus or uh, no. Could you, could you tell us like what happened in the pod? Um, okay. So I listened like halfway through it, but basically it really went in detail into like her life in China. And then she immigrated to the United States when she was like in sixth grade or something. And then like her 
mom experiencing all these like racist things but like I was really surprised not surprised because um I guess kind of expected because it's the New York Times but I was really um kind of taken aback by some of the language that she used that she thought not she thought was acceptable but like even the New York it seemed like the New York Times is endorsing this if they're releasing it like for example she was like I remember watching Cheerio ads and believing that Cheerios was the breakfast for superior people, which were American. (laughs) And I was like, is this what people are going to be expecting us to say from now on? Like stuff like superior people, like asserting America's superiority over like everybody else. Was she saying that in like oh, I can't believe how stupid I used to be, or be, or like, or, or actually endorsing that mindset? Well, I think she was describing it as kind of this is how she felt. Like this is objectively how she felt. No, no judgment. And I don't think that that's going to be possible in the future. Like, <laughs> I think we will probably have to be a lot more opinionated, just based mm-hmm. off of what seems to be going on in international relations. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. CS, you got any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the I think about the times in my life that you know, experiencing like any form of racism, it's uh, it's a it's a terrible thing, and it's uh, really painful in the sense that you kind of like you run it through your mind over and over again. I think back to the John Chu article that recently got run in the LA Times, um, and. Uh, you know, I think it's a positive thing. Um, I'm glad he wrote it. And I also think it's not enough uh, in the sense. Yeah, it's, it's ultimately it was very like, I wouldn't say weak, but it's like, okay, well, you didn't really say anything that I'm glad you yeah, wrote it. Because yeah. I, I think even doing that is something, but yeah, I, I know what you mean. I, I think it's pretty representative, uh, representative of kind of where we're at at this moment of kind of reeling from the fact that, you know, we we are no longer the illusion that like we can uh, overcome racism in this country is no longer true. Um, And, and, you know, I don't want to be overly negative and say like he needs to like do more and that's not good enough. Um, I think for me, I think back to this Toni Morrison quote that where she says that racism, like the function of racism is to distract so that you're constantly having to like give these reasons for like why you aren't this thing, why you're not this thing. And, you know, for me personally, that has been an exhausting experience. Um, And coming into my 30s now, I think one thing that I have become very focused on is I don't I don't have the space or like time to really exhaust over like, you know, what what white people are doing, what they think of me, what what trying to like true their reasons into like something that is anti-racist. I think having some like idea or some sense of self that actually has, you know, prioritizes who you are as opposed to like the opinions of the people around you. Because I think ultimately that perspective is a very American one. Um, like I think when you think of uh, this country as a nation of immigrants, the, well, that ultimately means that like America is a shadow to something else. You know, we are coming from a place that was, didn't work out for us. And, we're here in this nation to not be that thing, you know? And I think we can, this kind of gets, uh, 
this isn't like a right or left thing either. You like both the right and the left on the extreme ends both exhibit this thing. On the right, it's like the don't tread on me libertarianism that is very anti-government. Whereas the deep left, you have like people arguing for like civil liberties and uh, even more is just like general social justice are also like criticizing. And I think both of these perspectives actually do have valuable things to say, but um, th their position is entirely based on the being in opposition of the government and something that we don't, in, like you could say that then the power is like centralized into like a more centrist position in like the House of Representatives and Senate. But like even in those institutions, it's like hyper polarized and people are constantly at their throats. So I think uh, I, I think it, it this idea that I'm really interested in is like having some semblance of like government in or not even government, just like some sense of agency in in that like american identity not just being like i'm not this thing um uh, you know it's funny i just finished reading uh, the little red book uh <laughs> and i actually really liked it i mean there's some things that i have like critiques of it sure but like one of the things he talks about is the importance of like self-reflection within the party um because i think so much of what that book talks about is like the government as a function as a function of the people um, and this is like this a thing that I've consistently come up with in a lot of like uh, leftist writing. Like Malcolm X talks a lot about self reflection too. Um, and I think in my own life, uh, the way I, I've wanted to apply that is, uh, I know it's like corny as hell's, but like there's like the JFK quote that's like, uh, "Think what you can, not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country." I mean, I think it's kind of a bullshit concept, but. Um, I think it is like this idea of like having responsibility and agency in your own life and like what are the things that actually in like you can impact like the things that in your day to day um, that I think is something really important to have in Asian American identity because uh, you know if at the end of the day you can find that in like white spaces in this like class strivance narrative and you have success in that, you know, I guess that's like fine. But I think, it, I think it actually is what is we're finding to be true now. There's, there's a great deal of value to be found in having uh, some semblance of an identity that asks about where do you want to be and who do you want to share that time with? Um, I, th I think it does make, I I am not certain what the future is. I, I don't make any predictions about it, but um, I, I hope that people are able to no longer have to focus constantly on like anti-Asian racism because that's still an important thing to talk about, but have some semblance of identity that um, doesn't fall into the same American tropes of constantly having to define yourself in opposition to something else. Yeah, I think um, I think one bright spot that I, I see for Asian Americans is I think so for so long we've had to deal with who we are either in, in a totally fictional sense, which is why media representation was so important to us because it was about the projection of our image to others in hopes that they would love us more or respect us more, uh, etc. But it it really wasn't it, as I said it, it was all in in this ether world of imaginary people or stuff. Or uh, if it was in the real world, it was very 
based on like interpersonal racism, uh, which is why things like uh, you know who who you're dating or who your friends are like are they Asian or are they not? What became so big became such a major point of issue because that was really the only way we could talk about like what it meant to be Asian because we weren't allowed to do it politically because we were told we have no political relevance that um, the story of of you people is that you, you came over from Asia by our grace and we treated you really well and now look at you you know you're like you're like our favorite child so uh, in in Admits that there's really no uh, foothold you can have politically because all, all, all you can be is some like ingrate. Right. But in, in the environment, especially when, when you look at the, the complexities of uh, just like Asian, uh, how Asia and the, and the economic rise there will impact the just that whole balance of of like power. I mean, I saw this this graph um, and it was really surprising. It was pretty much like for, if, if we're just looking at the AD years, Except for like the last 500 years, like the whole world was always dominated by China and India. And it's this weird aberration of, of the last like four to 500 years where that hasn't been the case. And even then, it's like China was still like either, like the second biggest producer of just world output until like the mid 19th century, I think, when it just had this like precipitous decline. So it, really, it, it's, it's this small uh, period that we're living in that, that has subverted what seems to be just kind of like the natural order of things just based on landmass and population. And it's just how how the world that's gotten very used to this uh, recent phenomenon is going to react. Like even with all the the nationalist movements in like Europe, I was uh, I always felt like the baseline for that was the rise of China. Even if people weren't aware of it directly, because at, at its core, all those things were about this feeling of loss of control because of uh, you know the, it, it it was no longer this unilateral economic relationship in which like Europe and America, what they wanted went and the whole rest of the world was just there to provide whatever they wanted. Uh, that was getting overturned. So suddenly they felt out of control and they started like blaming, I don't know, African immigrants, Muslims or whatever. But I always thought that in the end, it's like a few immigrants from, you know, like Tunisia or like whatever, or some, some like poor country in the Middle East with some wacko religious movement. That's not, that's not really the big threat at the at in the big scheme of things. It really is like a, a country like China that really has uh, the capability to overturn uh, the world order, and and you see this on on social media, like this kind of impotent rage you see from people, like you know we should like cancel our debt without realizing that that would just have catastrophic consequences on <laughs> on America itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they realize they can't do shit. They're like, well, we'll like send in like the nukes or whatever. I was like, well, you know, they got nukes too. And, you know, they're going to, you know, they're going to strike back at you before they just let themselves die. They're not some tin pot dictatorship, you know, like, like some tiny country uh, somewhere where you could just bomb them. And sure, uh, you might not be able to get everything you wanted, but in the end, you could still bomb them and feel like feel big for doing it. But you can't do that with China. And I think that's just wreaking havoc on a lot of people's psyches. Yeah, yeah. They actually do like the the imaging of it all makes us look bad. Like we're self-aware of how shitty we look. And it's like becoming more apparent as this virus goes on because the United States is just not dealing with it well. And you can point your finger all day at like where it started. But at the end of the, you know, when it comes to it, like you look at the numbers and they speak for themselves. Yeah. And and it's not like, it's not like the U.S. uh, As soon as, uh, as soon as we heard of it, we sprang into action, and oh. and you know, you know no, it, like we took months. And then you look at comparable countries that have less resources, um, 
than we do and they they pretty much found out at the same time or maybe even later they're dealing with it much better and just like and i i think people just don't want to face up to the fact that uh yeah we're, we're not as good as we thought we were yeah 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 i feel like um there's it's a really existential period i mean I think that I've had more conversations over the past month about like, is the American system the way to go than I have ever had in my life? (laughs) Um, Like if you asked me in seventh grade, (laughs) if I would ever be having conversations about questioning if America was the best country on earth, I think I would have said no. (laughs) Like it's really, um, it's really interesting because I think this virus in particular is something that really questions the American model in ways that, um, other types of crises don't like. Oh, for sure, for sure. The 2008 crisis. I mean, I would say probably American, like the American model for me is probably categorized into like three things. So one of them is like free trade. Okay, the other one is kind of like this faith in these multilateral institutions, like the UN, because we lead them. And the third one is probably like neoliberalism and stuff like that. But okay, so the virus, in terms of free trade, we can't trade with anybody because of mm-hmm. this. Like all of the supply chains are broken down. In terms of multilateral institutions, just shows how little a governance mechanism that isn't like enforced onto people matters. Like in terms of just like the weakness of the WHO and be able in being able to enforce anything. Also in terms of like the collaboration between countries and the lack of that going on right now. And then also the, I think that what goes on in a crisis was always kind of a structural weak point for the United States in that we have like exceptions in our constitution about like the powers of everybody during a crisis. So then I think there's so many different points of the quote-unquote American model that is just being challenged by this virus in particular, which is something that in the 2008 crisis, America basically left unscathed as the world leader in that. And I think that those existential crises of the American system and of what the United States is is something that will probably stay with my generation um, for a long time. Yeah, because I'm trying to think, when was the last time that uh, America genuinely feared that there was another like way that might possibly be superior? I, I, was it like before we won the space race, maybe? I don't know. Did something happen in the 70s? Because I think by the 80s, it was pretty obvious. I think the Soviet Union was was you know not in a good place. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not the biggest scholar on recent American history, but maybe, maybe it hasn't been like this since like, the late 60s this yeah, like I mean, genuine crisis of confidence this is this might be the first time that there's like a real serious existential threat to america because i would say that like probably first of all america always thought of itself as like this special child i guess because mm-hmm. we were the first democracy we implemented democracy we had a constitution it was one of the first constitutions we won our own revolution which was something that was very rare so then i think there was always this sense of like american superiority and being blessed by god and manifest destiny and stuff like that which um i don't think was really ever seriously challenged until like it was definitely enforced by world war ii 
and World War One. It was definitely enforced by winning the Cold War and everything, but I don't think it was ever seriously challenged. I guess. I I think I think too though. If you look at um, like let's think of like times of prosperity, like the nineties, um, and you look at media at the time. I don't know, for some reason, in my, in my head, the image that really pops up to me is like Marilyn Mansion on like Jerry Springer and shit, where it's like <laughs> here's, here's a time. Here's a time where America is prospering. Here is a time at which like the economy is doing well. Things are like people's dreams are attainable. And like the, a lot of the media that is available is like grunge and like these like pretty subversive music movies, like the matrix and stuff that are like talking about how, like how flimsy a lot of like these goals are. Um, And so I, I think like we're starting to realize that like when, what it actually, what success in the American model looks like um, is pretty unattainable because it's just so uh, built on like this idea of like class ascension and growth that is really a dead end. It's not obtainable to a lot of people. And in the nineties, you know, like we had, we're in this position where like, well, we have the stability, but we're like all depressed. And now in the two thousands, you're going to like, we have all these crises, but like, we have all this wealth we can overcome. Um, and now that we've overcome that decade and we're in like this whole new realm of shit show and things still aren't like ascending, they're in fact descending. I think it's a lot more clear to most people now that it, there's a, like, this huge fatal, fatal fall on this idea or dream. Yeah, but we could see the, uh, like, I, I would argue that seeing you know the jerry springers and the matrixes in the media is is a sign that uh of a confident society it's like we know we're the best that's why we can afford to show how depressed we are and show how dystopian we are nowadays i think you make something that's too critical of america and, and people get upset which i think is one of the reasons bernie sanders lost i i saw people just like saying well, why is he so uh, why why is he so critical of America? You know, we're we're not that bad. We're not like starving our own people. Uh, and and they didn't like that. And I think the reason is that it's true. And and that's what they didn't want to face. And so what we could see is the as uh, America declines, our our media actually becomes more peppy because uh, it's like people don't want to know the truth. It's like well, yeah, when you're doing well in the '90s, yeah, sure, we'll we'll, we'll poke fun of ourselves, we'll be self-critical. But now you do that, and then I don't know those those, those Chinese uh, propagandists will, will seize on it and make us look bad. So we got to circle our wagons. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's true to a certain extent. I think it's kind of like how you're measuring success or happiness. Uh, it's hard to like I think of how like in the '90s, that's like when Columbine first happened, or was that in like early 2000s? No, no, that was in the nineties, late nineties. Because I think a lot of like that uh, disquietude, it kind of emotionally, uh, you know, there was maybe a delayed effect, but it was all kind of building to like the school shootings and like culture that we have today of like mass shootings. Um, like I, I think it is like an emotional thing that um, even though there was prosperity in the nineties, that these like the eventual the conclusion to that prosperity was the, the world that came after it. And to that regard, it's like not a sustainable model. Yeah, for sure. All right, so we've been potting for, for a bit. And I mean, this was, this was a great discussion. Do, do you guys do you guys have any uh, things that you want to do like the, the moment that 
it's kind of like safe to see people again. Do you, do you have some things on your checklist that you, you immediately want to do? Uh, my, my phone is dying currently and it's the last throw. So I need to replace that. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that, uh, government stimulus check ever comes in, that would help out a lot, but it's kind of predicated more on like what we actually have money for. I think at the end of it, I mean, it's just so hard to say. I feel like most people are living so hand to mouth week to week that you, you know, it, you can dream of like, Maybe I'll go out of town for a bit. Maybe I'll do these things. But then it's just so hard to say what's going to be open and when. And then, like, what can you actually afford at the end of it? Yeah. Yeah, what about you, Christina? Um, I just really hope that uh, school starts in the fall. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, where will you be starting? Um, I'll be at Yale. For- oh, right, right, right. So I actually uh, signed my lease, I think, last week. Oh, for an apartment there? I ever looked for an apartment and it's online. I did it online, which I guess is pretty indicative of the moment. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hopefully, if you, if you can't move in or stuff, though, you won't have to pay or whatever. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. It is mind-blowing how dependent we are becoming on like the internet for ev- literally everything at this point. Yeah, could you imagine a, a blackout of, of like the internet happening just even for like a minute? What kind of panic there would be? I mean, I, I think the only thing that might be worse if you like turn on a faucet and it turns out no water comes out. I think that's probably only uh, the thing that would induce more panic than the internet going out. Hey, that might even be worse. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah. as for me, I, I, I just want to go on a picnic. That's like the first thing I do. Yesterday, the weather was really nice. And I was like, oh, this would be perfect picnic weather. But that's what I would do. Call up some people, make some food, and just go to a park. And yeah, I miss just like going out, getting coffee, and reading a book in some place that's not my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've always like wanted to like picnics. <laughs> <laughs> what what don't you like about it? Is it is it like the the, the bugs or the or it's just... like a combination of like the bugs? And I feel like I'm never fully enjoying the moment when I'm on a at a picnic. Like, I feel like I'm always worried about, like, the sun is, like, blinding me and, like, the blanket is just lifting off the ground (laughs) and, like, my food is flying because the wind is, like, somewhere. Like, I feel like I'm never fully enjoying myself, you know? I'm always concerned (laughs) about these external forces ruining my Mm -hmm. picnic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I generally enjoy picnics. I mean, there was like the, the second last picnic I went to. I think I got really trashed because it was just like, well, because it's like it, there's like a lot of things to drink, and you know you don't want to drink water because you're like, oh, I don't want to have to like go to the bathroom. If I do, I, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to be it because of water or whatever. And it was you get dehydrated, and then you just like drink too much. And then I was fine until I was taking the subway home. Then I realized how. How drunk I was, and I want to say I like I don't even really remember going home. <laughs> uh, you partied. And I remember like ha- having to transfer somewhere, and I was like, oh man, I don't know. I didn't throw up, but I was like, it would be really nice if, if I could lay down somewhere. <laughs> and I was at, I was at, uh, just like, but you know, the, the floor was like too dirty. I wouldn't do that. But drinking, drinking, honestly, that is something I miss. I haven't had a drink since it started. <laughs> 
What? Well, haven't you haven't you been seeing the 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 rate of alcohol sales? They've been going through the roof. Like a, every alcohol company is probably a blue chip stock. Right? I mean, I am like I would very much love to go get alcohol. I, I work at a grocery store, so I get my groceries there, and then we don't sell alcohol at that store. So it's like, well, I'm not going to go okay. out just to buy alcohol because that seems really irresponsible. Even though I really want, I don't know, you know. So as soon as it like eases up a little bit, that's what I'm doing. Something to look forward to then. Yeah. All right. Uh, Christina and CS, thank you so much for joining me for this pod. Uh, I mean, CS, obviously you've been on recently, but Christina, you got to come on more, uh, especially before you depart. And I'm in the right time zone. So just. Exactly. (laughs) None of that Greenwich Mean Time nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I hate being not in the same time zone as like literally everyone else I know, but yeah. Very glad to have you back in uh, the New York, New Jersey area. Yes. Glad to be back. And it was very (laughs) nice potting with everybody. Yeah. Hopefully if, if they, if we're allowed to go outside in the, in the winter, I'll, I'll throw a picnic and you can, you'll be invited and hopefully it'll be your first good experience. (laughs) Wow. That's exciting. (laughs) Looking forward to that. (laughs) All right. Okay, have a great day, guys, and we'll uh, hopefully see you again soon, audience. Um, tune in next time for another Escape from Planet. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. bye. bye.